Hi, and welcome, everybody. You are listening to the Arctic Conversation podcast, a recording with journalists from around the circumpolar Arctic, initiated by Barnes Press in Sweden. Our program is aimed at highlighting development trends in the Arctic. My name is Thomas Nilsson, and with me here today, I have uh, uh, Amy Martin from the United States and Anna Kireva from Murmansk in Russia. So. Uh, today, we really have a circumpolar panel. Hello, Anna. How are you doing up in Murmansk? Hello, Thomas. Uh, in Murmansk, it's minus 20 and uh, snowing. So it's typical Arctic weather. Wow, that's so cold. Uh, you are inside, yes, I presume. Yes, of course. You are indoors. That's great. So, Montana, United States, the winter has arrived over there. Yes, winter has arrived here in Montana, but we are far from the Arctic. We are kind of, you know, down here in in the Southlands compared to the two of you. So, but I'm sure it's very cold up in Alaska where we actually have Arctic. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Let's go on. This podcast today is going to focus on the emerging businesses, the new businesses that are entering uh, the Arctic. And here, uh, there is a lot to talk about. It's actually many businesses uh, up north that are up north just because of the cold climate. Uh, like the data center Facebook has established uh, in Luleå, northern Sweden. More about that in a minute or two. But we're also going to look into those businesses that are coming due to climate changes, like uh, the new trading routes uh, between Asia and Europe. Uh, with new shipping, uh, as the Arctic ice melts away, we might get a new uh, shortcut just across the top of the world with cargoes, uh, mainly from Asia to, uh, to Europe, but maybe also the other way around. And the Arctic, ladies and gentlemen, that is the area where it actually is already quite much businesses. Correct, Anna, up in uh, Murmansk. You have uh, uh, huge melters, you have mining industry, and more is to come, isn't it so? It is, it is true. And this is, I guess, the specific of the Russian part of the Arctic. Uh, the Russian part of the Arctic was uh, uh, heavily, was getting heavily inhabited and populated and developing. Uh, it started on the second part of the last century because of the Arctic resources, because of the mining, because of the oil and gas, and so on. And that's the destiny of the Russian part of the Arctic. It's uh, kind of this um unbalanced situation when arctic is very fragile and harsh but also it has everything we need for uh energy and clean energy technologies and so on you know uh, anna i think we have to uh, explain our listeners a bit about the geography here. Uh, Murmansk, it sounds far, far away from everything, uh, from the center of, uh, of Europe, uh, from the center of all uh, journalism, uh, public attention, etc. But uh, it, it, isn't it so that uh, on uh, the Kola Peninsula in Murmansk, you are actually more people living there than in the entire Alaska? And then I include Anchorage, which is a quite big city. How many people are you in Murmansk, in the region? Uh, yes, Thomas, you are right. In the region, we're more than 700,000 people. And Murmansk is still one of the largest cities in the, in the Arctic in the world, uh, with the population with a little bit less than 300,000 people. But in Soviet times, it was 
at about half a million uh, for the population. So when I'm talking about uh, developing of Arctic towns in Russia, it was several hundred thousand people in, uh, in many of them. They were distanced from each other uh, and they were formed by the companies. It was either mining or metallurgical companies or the coal companies or oil and gas. Uh, now we call them uh, company towns. They are smaller and smaller, but these kinds of businesses were the, the major one in the Soviet Union to form the Russian Arctic. I, I, want to, uh, I want to ask you, Amy, you're American and, uh, and you have the huge uh, uh, Alaska and the territories up there that for most people are known historically for gold mining and maybe some oil and gas activity that have made a few people very, very rich. Uh, but you have been traveling also across the European uh, part of the Arctic, including visiting Anna in, in Murmansk. Could you give us a, a brief uh, a description of the differences uh, on uh, uh, new uh, developing uh, industries in the American Arctic uh, compared with uh, the Scandinavian and Russian part of the Arctic? Sure, I can I can try. And I think, you know, to start out with, it's it's really important to just like understand that this huge state of Alaska, which is, um, you know, almost as big as like half of the continental U.S. If you put a map of Alaska over the map of the continental U.S., it covers half of it. So it's a huge, huge state. But only the northern tier is actually in the Arctic, and they call that the North Slope. Um, and that is in itself an enormous territory. It's about the size of the state of Wyoming, which is one of the biggest states in the lower 48. But there are only about 10,000 people who live permanently across that entire region. So if you compare that, like when I went to Murmansk, I, even though Anna had told me ahead of time, and I knew from looking at pictures, doing research and everything, like it's a city. I, there was a way that it was almost surreal to, you know, take the city bus every day and go to the mall. You know, all these things that are, you know, very much associated with, with modern city life, where, it, you know, in the American Arctic, um, it's just it, completely different. It's just way, way, way more rural, way fewer people. And um, in terms of businesses, um, you know, the, the primary business on the North Slope is oil and gas, the largest oil field in the United States, largest conventional oil field before fracking was discovered, um, is in Prudhoe Bay, which is on the North Slope of Alaska. And that has just been an absolute powerhouse for the state of Alaska for the last 40 years. It's funded everything, you know, Anna mentioned taxes and that the taxes and royalties from the oil and gas development on the North Slope have funded everything in Alaska for, for 40 years. But that, that oil field is in serious decline. And so there's just a huge push right now to try to find more oil and gas. And they are finding it. There's a new area, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, which the Trump administration, the Congress and the Trump administration have approved for more oil and gas development there. But really, when we talk about business in the American Arctic, um, you know, there's some tourism, there's definitely some growth of hoping for more, you know, activity through uh, shipping as as the sea ice melts. Um, but it's really it's an it's an oil and gas uh, area. That's the, that's the business story in the American Arctic for sure. So same story repeating. The Arctic is about natural resources. It's about, uh, let's uh, call it the, the, the dirty uh, energy, uh, oil, gas, uh, those uh, kind of uh, products that create uh, climate changes and have the, actually the Arctic melt away. Isn't that a paradox in, in the United States these days? 
It's very, very much of a paradox. And in fact, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, spoke at the Arctic Council um, gathering in the spring and, you know, kind of spoke in hopeful terms about all the new business opportunities that will come with climate change. And there was a pretty strong reaction uh, here from a lot of people who are very concerned about climate change to hear him talk about it in kind of excited and hopeful terms, especially because the hope is then to go get more fossil fuels that will accelerate the climate change. Um, but, you know, from the perspective of people who are pro-oil, um, it, it looks like a fantastic business opportunity. So there's just a huge, you know, paradigm uh, clash there. And that's actually something I'm interested to ask you about, Thomas, in terms of in Scandinavia, I feel like, uh, you know, it, it doesn't seem, no one's really asking whether or not climate change is real. Everyone is just dealing with it. Um, but at the same time, Norway, of course, is a, is a huge oil producer. And um, what are you seeing in, in Norway in terms of that conflict within the Norwegian society? Oh, that is uh, the, the the main question for for us as uh, uh, journalists working in uh, in Norway these days, and uh, especially for us working uh, on issues covering the Arctic, uh, because it's so obvious that uh, everyone agrees that we have to cut uh, the amount of uh, climate change gases, and uh, Norway is probably the worst in class here in Europe. Uh, we haven't cut very much at all since 1990. And uh, we have great ambitions. It's uh, nothing wrong with that. We are writing uh, green texts in our parliament, in our laws uh, and our strategies. But then at the same time, uh, Norway as, as a country is uh, a kind of dependent on uh, the oil uh, for our economy, uh, for the employment, uh, and uh, for, for us as, as, a, as a nation. Uh, there was once a foreigner visiting Norway, and he said that the Norwegians, they are petroholics. They, uh, they know that it is bad, uh, but they can't just stop. They, they have to, to drill one more uh, oil field or, or drill at least one more day and then maybe the day after. Uh, so it's, it's really a paradox for us as a very small country in the northern part of, uh, of Europe. Uh, in the Barnes Observer, we try to cover this, we try to explain it, but it is uh, often, especially when we talk to people from other places uh, on planet Earth, uh, difficult to explain actually why the Norwegians are so eager uh, to drill up in the Arctic, because we are not only focusing on the traditional oil fields uh, further south in the North Sea that we share with uh, Great Britain, uh, but Norway is actually the country today that is pushing uh, the borders, uh, the frontiers of uh, the petroleum industry uh, way north of the mainland Norway and uh, way inside uh, the Arctic Circle. One another interesting thing in, in Murmansk to turn this conversation uh, 180 degrees into the new economies uh, and the new businesses of, uh, uh, of the Arctic. Uh, in Murmansk, you are actually a pioneer in Russia in regards to wind energy and renewable thinking, isn't it? It is true. And there was uh, this discussion about the using the wind potential in Murmansk region for a couple of decades already. But uh, uh, Murmansk region is a really unique region in the Arctic, I would say, because of it has so much energy that we don't know how to spend it. We have coal and nuclear power plants operating 
60% of its capacity because there is not so much heavy industry using it. We have a lot of hydro energy and the hydropower plants working on 50% of their capacity. But now finally, there is a um, Italian company, NL, which came to Murmansk and they will, in two years, they will build a huge windmill park, the first Arctic uh, industrial windmill park with a capacity of 200 megawatts. So that's a big, uh, big thing for Murmansk region. There are a lot of new uh, uh, industries that uh, might come uh, because of our uh, special uh, conditions here up, uh, up in the Arctic. Uh, another example, of course, of uh, using the electricity in the Arctic is what we are seeing in northern Sweden, in the uh, just outside the town of Luleå. Uh, where uh, Facebook and other uh, Bitcoin miners, other huge data uh, centers have established themselves because these data centers it needs enormous electricity to cool down the amount of energy, to cool down the, the computer uh, servers. But the further north you go uh, in, uh, uh, in, the, in the Arctic, the, the less need there is uh, for artificial cooling. <laughs> uh, so that, that is a, that is a, a cool kind of thing. Maybe you should do the same in uh, in Murmansk to to establish data centers for uh, global uh, communication and uh, social media, says the Kontaktia, which is Russia's uh, answer to Facebook and, and others. <laughs> Thomas, how are? Oh, sorry. I was just going to ask Thomas how how are how do you think people are responding to? Uh, giant corporations like Facebook moving in to, I mean, I know you're not in Sweden, but you're, you're much closer to it than I am. How, how does that impact the local community and, and how do people feel about that? Uh, I, uh, uh, Luleå is a town that I've been following for, for uh, decades. Uh, I remember Luleå 20 years ago when you were driving there and you arrived on a Monday evening. Uh, you could hardly find a hamburger uh, outdoor because there wasn't any uh, restaurants, there wasn't any nightlife. People were kind of uh, depressed. Uh, but but uh, nowadays, after Facebook established this uh, service center, which is actually only a few tens of people working there, it's a huge building, but it's uh, it's not that many employees. Uh, but that gave a boost to uh, the city. So today you find Italian, French, uh, uh, Thai, uh, Indian restaurants that are open. Have, uh, a, a huge uh, uh, a, a other kind of companies that are moving in. So uh, having this kind of new uh, digital technology companies moving in uh, gives a boost uh, to, to the cities. And that's the kind of thing you have also seen in other parts of, uh, of the Arctic. Uh, the mobile telephone company Nokia, for instance, uh, which was world famous a decade ago before smartphones arrived, uh, that was actually based out of the Finnish town of Aulo uh, in, in northern Finland. So uh, the Arctic is absolutely a place where new technologies uh, could uh, could come. And uh, I know this uh, the cities of uh, Luleå in Sweden and Aulo in, in Finland and uh, Tromsø in Norway, they have been discussing about marketing themselves as a kind of uh, Arctic Silicon Valley through these three countries. Uh, in in the northernmost uh, northernmost Europe. Hmm. If they're only hiring, you know, ten or twenty or thirty people, how does it give the local community such a boost? It, it, it seems like it could just be a giant piece of infrastructure that you have to build, and knock down a bunch of trees, and then it just sits there. Um, I don't understand the connection between that and and like uh, Thai food <laughs> and Italian restaurants. <laughs> well, you, you you know, it's uh, it's just like it was uh, in in your class at at high school when the first one started to use Facebook, the rest of the class 
followed. So uh, that, that's the same in Lula. When uh, when Facebook established themselves there, uh, other data centers arrived. So so today there are many many data centers uh, uh, coming, and when uh, such technology companies are coming, that gives a boost to the local university, which is a technological university. So they it's more. Uh, attractive for new students to come there and study. And with new stu uh, students coming to the university, the city grows and you get a younger population. And then the younger population want to go out, not only on Friday evenings, but also on Mondays. And then you get all the nightlife and the restaurants and building and construction companies. Uh, one take the other. I see, I see, interesting. I have to visit. And uh, 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 talking about uh, future potentials of, uh, of uh, uh, industries in, in the Arctic, uh, Anna, you, you are t telling us about uh, the Norilsk nickel that is closing down its plants, uh, etc. But uh, uh, the, the metals that this company is mining, it's uh, mainly nickel and uh, copper, but also cobalt. And uh, these three metals are the core uh, for uh, batteries, for electric vehicles uh, that the world is, uh, is uh, uh, transmitting to uh, in, in the future. How, how, the, how does that go for, for the mining company when they want to greenwash themselves or do they actually want to produce these metals in best available technology? So uh, in order to get greener in the world, you need the metals like nickel, copper, cobalt and so on. But also, you need to extract it. You need to mine it in the Arctic, and that's the that's one of the paradoxes of uh, of the Arctic. We have seen uh, seen the same uh, in Sweden, Finland, and Norway as well. Uh, they have the the hugest uh, nickel mine uh, already uh, discovered uh, is north of Sodankila, which is on the Finnish side of the border from uh, from the Kola Peninsula. Uh, that is a Swedish company, Bogliden, uh, that are uh, are running this mine, and and they focus very much on uh, providing nickel uh, for Tesla, for Volkswagen, uh, for the others. Uh, and uh, the Arctic is also the area where one of the biggest battery uh, production facilities for electric vehicles is under construction right now in Skellefteå. And uh, in uh, in uh, northern Sweden, Amy, in in the United States, you're you're the home country of the car. Car was uh, uh, Henry Ford, and and all, all this. Uh, how, how do uh, how do you see it there when when it comes to the transforming of the car industry from combustion engines to electric, battery, or hydrogen uh, zero emission uh, cars vehicles? Well, I think like so many things in American society, we're very divided. You know, there are there are certain communities and certain sort of subsets of society that are very excited about electric vehicles. And in, in lots of bigger cities, there's lots of places where you can charge your cars and you see a lot more electric vehicles. Um, in other parts of the country, it's, it's pretty hard to make it practical because of the huge distances of our country and how, you know, just the battery life of cars. But then beyond that, there's also just sort of... Um, social political resistance, I think, because a lot of people, you know, I mean, we we drive huge vehicles that guzzle a lot of gas. And, um, you know, California has just been pushing really hard to establish uh, uh, better, more environmentally friendly uh, gas emission standards and got a lot of pushback uh, from the Trump administration. So we're 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 so divided on, on where we're going with this. But um, 
in terms of the connection to the Arctic, I will say I think most Americans have no clue that their electric vehicle um, or their cell phone or other things that are using these minerals and metals um, that that there that a lot of those things do come from the Arctic or from you know other places. Places, you know, there's uh, mines in the Congo and, and other places where there's some real social political questions to be raised about the, uh, you know, who is doing the mining and how they're being treated and how the, the land is being treated. Um, and I, uh, in fact, when I was reporting for the second season of my show, I pushed, I, I, I tried to get Tesla to give me a very clear uh, chain of, you know, where are you getting your cobalt? Where are you getting all these different things? And they um, just did not respond. Um, not only to me, but I think to many other reporters that are trying to get that kind of information. So I think the more people can understand the supply chain of where these things come from, the more leverage they have over companies to try to say, you know, I don't get to just sort of feel great about driving my electric vehicle if it was if some of the components were mined in a way that's, you know, super destructive to the environment or just, you know, really hard on, on the workers. I think that's a huge part of this, too, and the way those two things fit together. So, um I, I think it's another lesson in how the Arctic is connected. We're all connected to the Arctic, and it's it's connected to so many things that we're not even aware of. Um, so hopefully, with more time and more more conversations like this, we'll get some more Americans thinking about those connections. <laughs> and that, that, that's a job for us as uh, journalists, isn't it? If uh, a lot of people around the world doesn't know where the oil and gas is coming from in the Arctic, and for the future, they don't know where the nickel and copper and cobalt for the Teslas and the other electric vehicles are, are coming from? We should continue to ask those questions. Do you know why didn't Tesla want to answer uh, where they get uh, their metals from? I mean, they are kind of, they, they need the, the green image, don't, don't they? Yeah, and I'm assuming that's why they don't want to answer. Um, because you know. because, uh, <laughs> because the, the, the mining isn't, uh, isn't green, I think, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know, of course, I don't know. But um, in general, as you well know, Thomas, when people don't want to answer your questions, it's because they have things that they would rather have you not know. And I think it's very hard uh, to get some of those metals. In, you know, a lot of the metals that are needed for electric vehicles happen to be located in countries with very lax environmental and workers' rights standards. And that's just a huge contradiction um, as electric vehicles, and not just electric vehicles, but all kinds of other uh, devices that we use every day, um, you know, as we depend on them more and more, I think uh, companies like Tesla and many other companies are going to have to reckon with that discrepancy between image and reality. And, um, you know, and I, I think there's something really healthy about that in the sense that possibly then they can start to exert some pressure on countries who are not inclined to create great environmental standards or worker standards on their own. They might have an incentive to if Tesla is like, well, we're not going to we can't buy any any more copper from you, you know. Um, but for them to do that, they need the public to care and raise a ruckus about it. So and uh, that is um, even before. Uh, huge economies like uh, China and India is uh, is entering uh, the Arctic. I think we should say that is the last word uh, of this uh, podcast. Uh, welcome back later on on the Arctic podcast by great journalist on the circumpolar north. My name is Thomas Nielsen with the Barnes Observer. Thank you very much to Amy in the United States and to Anna in Murmansk. Talk to you later. Bye bye. <laughs>